sword wasn't worth the self-hatred. This is episode 54 of They're All Going to Laugh at Him. I'm Alex Sprague. And I'm Jess Geyer, and today we have a guest. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself? It's Michael Clameris, and I'm also a part-time game designer um, and casual Sandler fan. Yeah, and uh, what did we watch today, Alex? Uh... The Meyerowitz stories, which I'm always afraid I'm going to mispronounce because I do it a lot in my own head. It's a hard name yeah. to say. I'm just, I think it's Meyerowitz. It's, it, there's too many syllables. Well, there's three in times the in the last name I expect it to end. Like it's Meyer, Myro, and then Meyerowitz. That's, I don't know, it's just, it's one too many for me. It's hard. <laughs> Um, that and stories being plural just throws me through a loop, personally. And this movie has, uh, like, a subtitle, too. What's that subtitle again? New and Selected. New and Selected. Which I didn't get before we saw it. I didn't know what that was referencing. I, I got it after. Yeah, we're watching all 60 Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler adjacent movies in a row every day and podcasting about it. Alex, why are we doing this? I, I didn't, uh, I forgot to, to make a part for this. I don't have a monologue, so this is my monologue. It's to see if Adam Sandler deserves all the hate. That's that's it. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Michael, do you want to tell us, like, what's your experience with Adam Sandler so, and this movie? Yeah. Oh, okay, so, um, well, so I grew up watching him on SNL because I'm old, and, um... So in the early 90s, I watched them. And then, you know, I kind of was a fan during the 90s. Fell off a little. There's some stretches that are a little rough. But um, maybe, I don't know, at least in my opinion. And then later on, I guess sort of recently, starting with this, I guess, I kind of got more back into his work. Do you have a favorite? Oh, favorite. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, This might be a two-part question. So my favorite... (laughs) Favorite, over, so I feel like, yeah, because my favorite is probably Punch Drunk Glove, but also like my favorite Sandler verse one is Happy Gilmore. Those are both really basic answers, but um, that's how it is. Um, no, that that's totally valid because that's probably what I would say too. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a grandma's boy person, but you know, there's not much difference in in the long run between Grandma's Boy and Billy Madison. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and you can get more specific and say, well, during this phase, from whatever <laughs> stretch, I don't know. I feel like there's different stretches in his career, like the 90s, and then there's a period where he's mm-hmm. kind of branching out a little, and I don't know. Maybe I over-examined it too much. No, but... don't, don't ever say that on this podcast. <laughs> there's no such thing <laughs> as over-examination in this podcast. Yeah, uh, so it's extremely basic answers, but yeah, that's those are my favorites. Do you have a least favorite? Uh, well, couldn't finish Ridiculous Six. Um, <laughs> one that I could, I guess, I know that neither of you really hated it, but I guess grown or not, yeah, Grown Ups. Yeah, I mean, it's I don't. There's worse ones, I guess, like Little Nicky, but that one's so weird. <laughs> That it like I, I hate little it's Nicky not good, so much. But it's such a weird disaster for me that it's not like yeah. it's more interesting. I I, I, re- I remember loving that movie as a kid too. Is it's also been really a, yeah, it's me. also been a while since I've seen <laughs> yeah. it. And even then I was like, uh, I don't know what <laughs> It's okay. I remember loving Master of Disguise and I will never let myself live that down. So <laughs> I it's just, I'm nervous it's about Waterboy. I'm nervous about Waterboy because that's one I haven't seen in a long time, and I was like, "Oh, this is great." And then now that I've heard both of you kind of, I think I, if I remember correctly, neither of you were too hot on it. Um, like it was fine. It's just not my movie. I actually like The Longest Yard more than that movie now, okay. which is not something I would have thought. Okay. Um, just because I don't know the Waterboy. It doesn't have enough oomph for me anymore. It, I think the thing is with the Water Boy, like when it was made, all of the normal Adam Sandler stuff, like the weird voice and the weird jokes, 
that wasn't cliche yet for him. And now mm-hmm. okay, it that makes is. Sense. It's, yeah. yeah. Like, so looking back at it, it's a lot more annoying, I think, than it would have been if like I watched it when it came out. Okay. So it's like when a band has a huge hit song and it's like, oh, this is great. And then mm-hmm. 20 years later, it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Next one. That's okay. kind of how I feel about it. And it, it can be very problematic mm-hmm. at times. Um, it, it just wasn't my favorite. But I liked the Ridiculous Six. I liked that oh, one a really? lot. So, oh. yeah, I did. <laughs> oh. I didn't get to that episode, so I'm sorry. Uh. No, no. It's all subjective. Like, people... I, the thing that I don't like is when people just don't give Adam Sandler as a whole a fair shake. That's now. fair. Like, I, yeah, I feel very yeah. defensive about him now. But, I, I it, like, it's like, totally yeah. subjective. I think that's starting to change a little. I mean, we'll get into that. Yeah. Because I know there's the Rotten Tomatoes section, but um, <laughs> yeah. it, it's like starting from here and after. I feel like people finally start to kind of be like, okay, I guess I don't know. Maybe that's just something that always happens, like any entertainer or band or whatever. If you just stick around long enough, you're like, okay, fine. It's hard Except to actually. Say. I think he's okay though. I, I mean, it's not. That wasn't. <laughs> yeah, like. I think, though, like, for The Ridiculous Six, six, I think, is a good example of, like, I came in it having seen all his movies. I was primed for a satire, and I was expecting some bad stuff, and I knew I was sitting through the movie no matter what. If I went into that blind and it started off, like, kind of rough, and I was like, well, this is just racist bullshit, I would have probably been out, but knowing that I was kind of expecting him to a satire on that theme, I sat through it and then I kind of enjoyed it a little more. I don't think it was a great movie. I was like, it's a six, not like a, you know, a nine. But I mean, yeah, I also there was some inexcusable stuff. Still, we agreed that is offensive. So it's not like we're like, yeah, no, everyone <laughs> was wrong. And there's no racist element to this. <laughs> and I think that's what it was for me. Like, I mean, you've covered this before, but yeah. just like every time Rob Schneider shows oh up, it's just, and so <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm already not a fan. Yeah. So like, that's pure nightmare fuel for me. It's just like, <laughs> I'm doing a racist thing for an entire movie. It's like, oh no, but it, it, it's every movie. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get it's, over it. He even showed up in Sandy does, Wexler. Yeah, I know. You, uh... Yeah, I know. We <laughs> talked about how I just saw that, and it's just like. Gus sneak that in there at the very end. I don't even think we mentioned it on uh, yesterday's podcast either, because we're just like, yeah, of course Rob Schneider's there doing something racist. We can just skip through it now because he's <laughs> like right. getting through our defenses. It's so weird that it's like you know, 2017. I'm... There's still no. Uh, he's he's like primed us to expect the worst. So when he only does something a little bit offensive, it's okay. <laughs> like, that's, that's like a relief yeah. at this point, where it's like, well, <laughs> only this. Yeah. At least he didn't literally paint his face brown. Yep. And then you're like, ah, oh, shit. No, he did. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. this is going to be nothing compared to what Kevin James is up to, I guess. As <laughs> oh Michael pointed God, out yeah. to us before the podcast. I know that for that, yeah. that's a completely different thing. But, uh, Michael, you told us yeah. that Kevin James is going to play a neo-Nazi in a movie. And, like, <laughs> I am. There's I, furious Googling <laughs> right after. He looks frightening. <laughs> he looks scary. Uh, Neo Nazis are scary anyway. But yeah, I mean it's out. It you can go see it. It's called Becky. It maybe that's yeah. I don't know. Bonus that that'll be. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll we'll cool off with a nice uh, Kevin James Neo Nazi movie right after we're done this podcast. <laughs> uh, I I don't. I feel like I don't want to watch any more movies forever. Alex, do you want to get into? the sand layer and stuff um this is a one sand layer film because it just stars adam sandler he is i guess the top build person in this um i i would argue the movie mostly focuses on him mm-hmm. maybe dustin hoffman he didn't pro- uh, heavy masson didn't produce this he didn't help write or direct it uh it's a noah bombach i think i said that right bombach bombach Bombach. Oh, I'm guessing. I haven't like seen the a music couple. man. Who is extremely good, um, if people didn't know. He puts out a lot of very good movies. 
in my opinion. You know, obviously no one who listens to this still thinks my opinion. I like Home. I'm a fan. I mean, I've only seen a few of his (laughs) things, but I've liked... I really liked Madagascar 3. So I haven't seen that, but that's like... like, I want to see it just because he co-wrote it, but... um, Which is stupid, but... I just like, what... I want to know what that looks like, but I like Life Aquatic. Oh yeah, that's so good. um, Kicking and Screaming, which is not the Will Ferrell movie, but um, Francis Ha. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, and While We're Young was okay, but... Yeah, I liked Fantastic Mr. Fox oh, yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, I couldn't get through Life Aquatic. I don't know why. I think maybe because when I first tried to watch it, I was 12. Well, I think I think that one's kind of divisive around people. But it, for, even though it has like the biggest pop culture impact out of like maybe all of the Wes Anderson movies. But I just like, it never, th- we were talking about when we were watching this movie, actually, that, uh, it remind us of the Royal Tenenbaums, but like a little bit of that pretentiousness <clears throat> might have been scraped off um, because they kind of made fun of pretentiousness a little bit in this movie, um, which brings me to the I laughed 35 times in this movie, which is pretty solid for what I'd call a more dramatic movie. They call it a comedy and a dark comedy. I would kind of argue that it's much more drama based. Yeah. And finally... Do you both want to guess what the ratings are on Rotten Tomatoes? Do you want to guess first? I cheated. I already knew. I'm sorry. So you can go ahead. All of our guests (laughs) cheat. Okay. I think uh, that this was much more well received by critics. I feel like critics cannot get away with knocking this movie. Mm-hmm. Most of, mostly because it has a brief bit with Adam Driver, and everyone knows that critics love Adam Driver. So I mean, that's true. I also got excited when Adam Driver was on screen. <laughs> he so. was only there for one scene, though. <laughs> it was very sad. So I think that critics probably gave it like a. I'm gonna be bold. I'm gonna say like sixty. I'm gonna say that it was like fresh. Uh, and your audience and rating? the audience rating. I think that this is one of those occasions where the audience rated it lower than critics. So I'm going to say like 55. Actually, I'm going to bump those both up by 10%. I'm going to say by 5%. I'm going to say critics 65, audience 60. Um, yeah, you're pretty far off. Fuck! Because <laughs> this is a, this is an artistic movie about art. The critics gave it a 92. Oh, Wow. They loved it. <laughs> of course they did, though. Uh, and the audience score is 72. You were right that the audience score would be lower. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like this movie. Me too. Um, I definitely recommend it. I think we're all saying that. Um, I I don't think uh, out of 10 really works that well, especially when it's the same day as when you watch the movie for me. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't think everyone needs to see this movie. But, like... Maybe if you have some friction with family members, it would be a good movie to see. That's like, that would be my recommendation. Like, do you kind of hate your brother? Yeah, you'd like this. <laughs> my my two favorite uh, negative reviews of this are loud but vapid. What? Okay. And then you have to wonder about a writer director who wishes his characters would just shut up. I thought that was my job. Um. So very very relevant <laughs> things to say um, and seemingly missed a lot of the points of the movie in the artistic direction. Uh, but that's just my opinion. I think that this movie was directed very well. There was a lot of good like cinematography too. I'm thinking especially the scene where Jean is telling her story. There are so mm-hmm. many frames where she She's wearing this, and I'll get to the scene too, of course, in my recap, but she's wearing this gray coat that is almost the exact same shade as the trees that she keeps standing in front of. So she really blends into the background. It's very thematic for that scene. And there are so many scenes where she's framed alone and in fact moves out of frame from where her brothers are. And then her brothers try to move back into the frame and she physically distances herself and the camera just tracks on her. So she's like constantly pushing away and i just thought that that was very well done um and there are several moments like that where like the the camera work is really subtle and nice the acting was great 
in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, Emma Thompson's in it. Any movie with Emma Thompson, I'm going to automatically love because I love Emma Thompson. Uh, but of course, Dustin Hoffman plays one of the characters. Um, you mean Adam Sandler does a, a spectacular job in this too. And like just everything from the script to how things were framed, I thought was really well done. Was it a little pretentious at times? Sure. But it wasn't inaccessible to me. Yeah, and a lot of the pretentiousness was a point they were making, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the... Most of the complaints in the movie seem to be like, they talk too much and they talk too fast. And also, it's self-indulgent. Um, and I wonder, because uh, I think both of you are from the Midwest, not only live in the Midwest, but like... I found this as a pretty accurate way of how people on the East Coast actually talk, Um, except for the fact that, you know, there's some cinematic things where they're communicating about two separate things and talking over each other. But, like, I felt that that was good. I know a lot of people might not think it's realistic or that's bad, but, like, I've had those conversations where you're talking at each other at the same time. And I'm willing to bet that, like, Jess, you've probably seen me do that with my family, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. If your family was, like, maybe a little richer. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, that just, it reminds me so much of, like, my family gatherings and me trying to, like, explain things and, like, why you probably shouldn't be yelling so loud right now um, <laughs> or to my brother that the waiter's not being a dick to you just because he won't serve you a beer. Like you don't have your license. And he's like, well, I'm your older brother. They served you a beer. I remember that conversation. (laughs) Well, it doesn't fucking matter, dude. You forgot your wallet. That's not their fault. And you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this movie does do a really good job of capturing the kind of dread. And it's not like the immediate dread you feel when you spend too long with some family members that you don't really like. Mm -hmm. It's not that you hate them but that you know there's gonna be something and it just builds and builds and builds. I think it did a really good job of capturing yeah, that. like the flare-ups that come up when you're just, I don't know, yes, I can speak from my experience. Yeah. Just being in the presence of someone, like a family member, and it's like, you can keep your cool for a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> and then the little things keep building up until it's like, ah, yeah, yeah. And, and especially the, the things that from an outside view seem like nothing, and you're like, yeah, but they've been doing it for 30 years. Like, it drives me crazy. And they know it does. And they're doing it because they know it does. And stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I guess we should recap so we can get into to why this movie's good in different ways. Yeah. So the Meyerowitz stories are broken down into five sim- smaller sections. Uh, they always start, like, the sections always start with a white screen with some text. Um, and like a brief subtitle. Now, I, I didn't write down all of those sections, but I will um, like mention like what the titles are. I might paraphrase a couple of them. So uh, the movie follows the members of the Meyerowitz family. Um, so there's Howard. He's played by Dustin Hoffman. He is the patriarch of the family. He is um, a former sculptor and art lecturer at Bard College. And he has three kids, Danny, played by um, Adam Sandler, Jean, who is played by uh, Elizabeth Marvel, and Matthew, who's played by Ben Stiller. I went into this not knowing that Ben Stiller was uh, in this movie. Um, Matthew is the youngest and also the half-sibling to the other two. Howard is currently married to Maureen, played by Emma Thompson, who is a drunk, and also none of their mothers. Uh... Danny was a stay-at-home dad, and he has an 18-year-old daughter named Eliza, who is played by Grace Van Patten. Yes. Jean has no children and lives in Rochester, and she works at Xerox. And Matthew lives in L.A. and is, he's like, he manages people's money um, and has a young son named Tony, who um, does not make an appearance on screen. So I wanted to give, like, a, a summary of the family, just so I don't have to stop and explain these things as I go. Mm -hmm. Uh, The movie starts with Danny taking Eliza to his dad's house. She's off to college that day. And we meet Howard, Maureen, and Jean. And everybody has dinner together. Uh, They talk about how Howard got a bruise on his face while walking the new dog. And this comes up a couple times. 
there's a scene where Danny plays piano with Eliza and they sing a song about their family, about the three of them, meaning her, um, him, and their the mom who is not around uh, because he is getting a divorce. So that, that scene is kind of telling about their family dynamic. And Jean watches them sing it. It's a very, it's a very nice little musical moment. Gene and Danny, Danny also talk about setting up a retrospective for their dad's sculpture work. And they also talk about how the Whitney may have lost one of his pieces. Danny's going to stay with Howard for a while while Maureen is at Easter Island. And they hang out and eventually go to um, a show, an art show of one of Howard's contemporaries, LJ, who's played by uh, Judd Hirsch. Uh, at a showing at the Museum of Modern Art. And this doesn't actually go well for Howard. Uh, It's clear that he feels ignored and less than compared to LJ because he doesn't still have a career. He's kind of more unknown. Like people don't recognize him. Danny, though, sees Loretta, who he clearly holds a flame for. Loretta is LJ's daughter. They've known each other since they were young. But Howard interrupts their conversation to leave the event because he feels uncomfortable. And Danny has to chase him down, which he has a hard time doing because he has a pronounced limp that he refuses to get taken care of. Very dad energy. And it turns out that Matthew is working with Maureen and Howard to sell their house and all of Howard's art, which upsets Danny, uh, even though he'd never really lived in that house. And the section ends with him leaving to go stay with his sister, Jean. The next section is Matthew, and it focuses on him. Uh, We see him in New York. He is advising Adam Driver, who's playing like a rock star guy, on some of his finances and his house. And and then he meets up with his dad for lunch. Uh, They talk briefly about his dad's face again. And Howard doesn't want to talk about anything about Matthew's business and is actually openly hostile to certain elements of the conversation. Howard also talks about how one of the featured sculptures is going to be named after Matthew. Uh, because he claims that he helped, that Matthew helped as a kid, like like sitting on the floor and watching and handing him stuff, even though Matthew doesn't remember that at all. Yeah, he makes Matthew chase down a person who he thinks took his jacket, and the two end, two of them end up going together. Oh, the jacket didn't turn out to be his after all. It's just another example of Howard's uh, parenting, really. Uh, the two of them end up going to Matthew's mom's place, where she ends up apologizing for not being motherly to Gene and Danny. And Matthew and Howard have a fight outside about how Matthew feels mistreated and that he feels looked down on because he's not in the arts, that he's a business guy and that he makes a lot of money um, where Howard is like denying this. um, And Matthew's just getting angrier and angrier. And the scene ends with Matthew shouting, I beat you. And the scene ends. The next section focuses immediately on Howard's hospitalization. This is called the great shove i think and it starts like you don't really know what's going on because it starts like with an image of an x-ray uh but it turns out that howard uh the fall that he had taken uh that everyone had commented on during his walk with the dog had caused some internal bleeding in his frontal lobe and he is in the hospital gene and danny have to find maureen to even be able to talk to the doctor about his condition And Matthew also comes to visit, and while his dad was doing well before he left for business meeting, he gets a call along the way about his sudden downward spiral. So Howard has to be put into a coma to deal with the brain damage, uh, and eventually he gets sepsis, so he's in a really bad way. And the kids have to navigate the hospital system because there's a constant revolving door of caretakers. Uh, They spend a lot of time together during uh, this section, bonding, looking at baby pictures and stuff like that. And uh, Howard's condition continues to deteriorate to the point where people are gathering together to say goodbye, like with grief counselors and stuff. And the section ends when um, they're visiting right before the retrospective, which Howard's obviously not going to be able to attend anymore because he's in the hospital, where one of Howard's old, old friends, Paul, is in the parking lot to visit And we see Gene run in the opposite direction into the woods. So the next section focuses on Gene's story. Well, it starts with Gene's story. And she talks about how when she was visiting, like, their summer vacation home, it sounds like, how she caught Paul masturbating to her when she was a kid. She was taking a shower in her swimsuit and saw him do this. 
Uh, and her dad just dismissed it. And she was afraid to tell Matthew's mom because she thought she'd be mad at her. And that this has left her a little fucked up, according to her. So Danny and Matt decide to smash uh, Paul's car because they can't beat up an old man. He's like 80. Uh, so they, they wreck his car in a hilarious scene. And uh, then they go inside, they grab Eliza and they hurry out of there uh, to go to the retrospective. And at the show, Danny and Matthew get into a literal physical fight over how Matthew sold the house and all the work and just like all of their grievances. And then it cuts to Matthew giving a speech. And Danny also gives a speech where they both kind of air their similar but very different grievances about their father. And the section ends with Danny praising his daughter's filmmaking at Bard. And then the final section starts with Danny in the hospital for his hip replacement that had been hinted at um, with his limp. Eliza shows off another one of her films, with which Jean is part of. Um, so it shows a little bit of a change with Jean because she's kind of been like literally fading into the background throughout this whole movie. Uh, Matthew goes over to Marines where Howard is there recovering and having his first non-feeding tube meal, which is Chinese. Howard reveals that the statue that he named after Matthew was made in 1966, so it must have actually been Danny who was the one who helped, which is a fun revelation. <laughs> uh, Matthew then goes to visit Danny in the hospital and offers to um, have him come visit him out in LA. And then Danny goes to visit Howard and the day pretty much goes the same as in the first section where they're going to hang out or at least um, Howard is asking them and like maybe they're going to watch um, sports. But uh, he, when Danny says that he's thinking about going to visit um, Matthew in LA, Howard kind of insists, like demands that Danny stay and help take care of him um, and doesn't actually listen to him. And this pisses Danny off and he says no and repeats the same grieving phrases that he was taught to say goodbye to his father in an earlier section. Uh, so he goes off to L.A., but he sees Loretta on the road and he gets out of the town car to talk to her. And they plan to attend Eliza's showcase in a month. And the movie ends with Eliza and her new boyfriend, Robin, visiting New Whitney to see one of Howard's works. It's in a box. We never actually get to open it and see what it is. And Eliza says, this is him. And Robin says, that's so cool. And the movie ends. Yeah. So the movie was a little pretentious. I'll admit it. But <laughs> it's only because it has a lot to do with art. Yeah. And like art and wealth and. Yeah. And. The point, though, for me is, A, the father is the bad guy, and he's the most pretentious, and also might be a hack, which they keep mentioning. Like, uh, there's several times they say, like, you didn't, there might be a reason you didn't become famous. Um, and then his kids saying, uh, we have to think of him as a genius because otherwise he's just a prick, which is like... <laughs> I really like those parts um, because there's there's people I know who are like, I either have to come up with an excuse for why they're allowed to act this way or I have to admit that they're a bad person. Yeah. And I think that's something that was good and like a, a interesting message. But I think the first thing I want to talk about is uh, the, the sunglasses that people can't figure out if they're Danny's or Matthews. Matthews. And what those kind of represent within the movie. And also, I mean, I think it represents, you know, the perception of people. And that's the whole point. Um, and kind of their relationship. Because I find that the most interesting. And I think it's most symbolic of the rest of the relationships. Yeah, there are a lot of symbols that I didn't even mention throughout this. Like, of course, there's the statue, which is a big symbol. There is the sunglasses, of course. I mean, the the limp, even the brain injury, like all of those could be symbols. But the sunglasses is definitely interesting because they, it does recur in three of the sections. Mm -hmm. uh, four, technically, because he's wearing them at the end, right? It, it does, for me, make a good point of like, all, everyone's problems don't seem like problems from every other character in the family right like the everyone thinks the mom has a problem with alcohol which she does uh they show her maureen. crashing her car maureen yeah maureen twice she crashes her car while drunk even if it was a slight crash it doesn't really matter that's really bad 
Um, but she doesn't see that as a problem. And she has other things she keeps saying are problems. Um, and it's mostly her husband's uh, relationship with her family. She wants them out and gone, basically. And his past doesn't matter. Uh, and then there's, you know, all of Adam Sandler's problems have to do with raising a kid well and feeling like he's not respected because he didn't make anything of his life. He's not like an artist anymore. And it's obvious that like Matthew doesn't see him that way, but Matthew does have things that he thinks are his problems. And that's that's just kind of an interesting take and is shown very clearly throughout the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I... I enjoyed that aspect a lot, that everyone definitely did have different perspectives on things. And I think that the way the movie is separated into those sections lends itself to that because it's literally dividing the movie up into those different perspectives. But the one... Okay, so we ha- we start with Danny's perspective and then we get Matthew's perspective. but And then we get the group perspective, like everybody's world it's really the, the that third section where where howard's in the hospital that's mm-hmm. howard that's all about howard everybody's focus is on howard and at that point i was thinking like okay is yeah, Jean gonna get a section here she gets a card but then it kind of shifts quickly away from her section mm-hmm. and i i think that's also kind of thematic because she like her thing is that she like is the forgotten middle child she mm-hmm. like She's kind of mousy throughout, and the only person who does give her attention is Eliza. Like, Eliza ends up having Jean in her movies. Even at the beginning, they kind of, like, compliment each other, too. I don't know if you noticed Mm -hmm. that, like, when they first see each other, it's like, oh, nice pin and nice sweater. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I didn't didn't remember that, but yeah, they definitely do do that. Yeah, Eliza's role's really interesting in the movie overall, because she has a relationship that's not like tainted at all i guess mm-hmm. with each character she compliments uh gene she texts with uh matthew and it's shown that danny and matthew don't talk um even though danny reaches out and i guess kind of likes the the granddad i don't know how much of a relationship there really is with there but there's some kind of one I mean, there definitely is because she she knew like one of the songs that her grandpa liked. I couldn't tell you <laughs> other than Johnny Cash anything that my grandpa liked song wise. She's the only one that like is yeah. crying over him, like possibly uh-huh. passing away too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, which I think. Oh, nothing. I was just gonna say it doesn't. She's like the only one who doesn't have like like resentment buried in it. Unless, yeah. yeah. I mean, we never see it anyway. Yeah. yeah, she's, I mean, been protected probably by her dad from being, you know, criticized severely and, like, neglected by the that figure. I think that's definitely a uh, an element of that. She's also received a lot of one-on-one time with her dad, which was the problem that Danny and Jean had. Like, they didn't get that attention. They, like, didn't get parented, mm-hmm. really. And kind of the opposite problem that Matthew had, because he felt like he was overly focused on. But Eliza doesn't get those hangups from her dad. Like, she gets the attention from her dad. But they have much more of a cooperative kind of nature. And they show that right away with, like, the song that they play. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's clear that she's very well loved. And she's well loved by the other members of her family who all support her weird films. Her <laughs> films are always like she's always naked and having sex with somebody. That's like every film that she does. And like she's so open. Like if I made a film like that, I would never show my dad. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but like I think that shows that she she doesn't have hangups. Like that is the ultimate mm-hmm. I don't have hangups power move. Dad, look at me naked pretending to have sex. Like that's And and being a superhero that has sex. Yeah, like those are the the movies, mm-hmm. um, and then bringing your aunt into it and being like, she's in this movie where I have sex with a wolf. I think I don't actually remember uh, yeah. what that one was about. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of. Uh, I think it's kind of supposed to be like a reference to Fantastic Mr. Fox because it's like a fox face puppet kind of deal. You know what huh. I'm talking about? Huh. Yeah, but yeah, she she is she is an interesting character, and 
I think it's also interesting that she is the one, she's the family member that it ends on. Yes. I found it interesting. So basically, the final scene is the grandfather was terrified that, oh, they also refer to him as the dad in the entire movie. Which reminds me a lot, and I know I've said this like about several movies, in in The Infinite Jest, um, Mm -hmm. in Infinite Jest, not The Infinite Jest, um, the dad and the mom are both given like by the kids different names. So the dad's called he himself and the mom is called the moms. It's like not, it's like making them uh, an entity versus an individual. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, something I did in my phone when I was younger, where like my home phone number was just called the birth givers. <laughs> and like I did it as a joke, but like there is definitely some aspect of separating them from a person because they're just this symbol of authority and patriarchal, like whatever. Um, and I think, especially when it comes to certain artists, that's how we think of people in a lot of ways. They're not, they're not a well-rounded person with like, things they are a symbol of this thing um i think that's (laughs) i i wouldn't be surprised if you go back and learn that dustin hoffman's character asked to be called the dad you know like because he's so worried about his image but uh what i was getting around to is he's worried that this uh, museum has lost a piece of his art because they didn't display it and he wasn't sure where it was and then there's multiple times where they bring up like the Whitney has a, was his sculpture and he responds with, and it's not lost. Not that anyone asked. And then it ends with her finding it. Um, Cause there's catalog there. And basically I think that I'm not sure what the idea around that is, but I took it as it doesn't really matter if it's displayed. There's something there that will, you know, continue what he's done. And that's important, you know, yeah, but at the same time, I feel like this is very much not about legacy. Like, the Howard doesn't care about his legacy in terms of his kids. No, he, he cares about it in terms of the world. He wants his statue at a museum because he wants to be famous, important, and powerful. Right? Like... Yeah. It... it he could care less if so one of the big uh, seminal plot points is there's a statue named after Matthew because Matthew helped him make it. Turns out this entire time Danny helped him make it and it should have been named after Danny and he doesn't care because he doesn't care about Danny. He was just trying to make Matthew like, you know, part of his I don't know, entourage, make him feel important. And like that's that's part of the thing where like if he cared about what his family thought of him, naming it Danny would be very important and Danny would care a lot and he would have been touched by that. But he doesn't care about his family. He cares about the message it shows to other people and he doesn't think highly of Danny. Therefore, he can't name something after Danny. Well, I, I think that this is also, though, in contrast to LJ. Howard talked about how much he doesn't respect LJ for including video of Loretta, his daughter, in his work. He thought it was like, I don't know, exploitative. But then he turns around and names the statue Matthew, which is like peak exploitation. Yes. Um, and especially he named his art after something fake like fake. He Matthew didn't help with that statue. Loretta was the subject of that art piece. He's literally doing things he he said we're bad in order to further himself in the art world because he's a generally shitty person. Yeah. And I mean, I don't really know if I have a take on what's, uh, what counts as exploitation in the art world of like kids. If I mean, it looked like they filmed a kid walking. I don't think that's too bad. Right. Like, no, it's it's know. not. I mean, Loretta is also there at the exhibition, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I think I might have, a different opinion on that if I had kids on what's okay to put out there about them. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know. I it, She seems conflicted about it, but it, it's hard to know. I mean, mm. because he is profiting off of it, but it's like, <laughs> I, yeah. 
Who knows? It, I mean, people put like their kids on YouTube, and it's still a question <laughs> of like, should you do that? Oh, uh... I, I actually, I think I have more problems with putting a picture of my kid on YouTube than in an art exhibit. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, but actually, I think that that's a fair comparison, though. Um, yeah. The only reason why it's different is because more people would potentially be able to see a YouTube video, for example, versus an art show, which is very exclusive feeling and more like, oh, it's only going to be Sigourney Weaver and <laughs> like friends, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I do feel like uh, on on like a public forum like YouTube, anyone can see it and they can be primed to see it with anything whereas when you go to an art show you're primed to i'm going to see art yeah yeah it it feels less personal in a weird way but it's also obviously extremely personal i don't that's weird it's a weird kind of thing like i've been to art openings and it does feel very intimate but Mm. also very impersonal at the same time i don't know now michael had you seen this movie before this no not really i mean like four months ago um Okay. Not that much longer or earlier than you have. Gotcha. Um, did you rewatch it before? Yeah, I watched it yesterday. Yeah. Did you pick up on anything that you hadn't noticed uh, before? I mean, not a whole lot. Um, I guess one thing, I don't, I mean, I could be reading into it too much. Um, the person who um, actually harassed Gene, uh, his mm-hmm. last name was Epstein. Epstein. So oh. I, I didn't oh. know if that was like intentional or what. But I I would assume it is. I didn't realize that. I didn't even wow. think about that. I mean, I know it's a it's an it's a, um it's not an uncommon name, right? Um, but dang, you're right though. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! I mean, at in 2017, you know that that's happening, especially if you're in Hollywood. That's true. I wonder. You don't. I don't. I don't think you don't uh, think about who the pedophile is going to be in your movie. You know, like. <laughs> wow, I did not even think about that. Yeah. Yikes! Um. <laughs> also, I, I guess what what other name do you give that person? That's probably the best one for it. As a, you know, don't make it someone else's name on accident. And I don't know. Actually, I, I really liked that section of the movie mm-hmm. because Gene's brothers take it upon themselves to go, like, first they're thinking mm-hmm. about beating him up, and then Danny says, I'm going to spit on him. <laughs> yeah, I love and it's that one. like he's a decrepit old man, right? And then mm-hmm. they decide to go out there and, like, kick the shit out of his car um, in a prolonged scene. But when they all run back out, um, Gene says, like, I don't feel better. Like, you could, I could smash up all of these cars out here and it wouldn't unfuck me or un, unfuck me up or whatever she said. And it's like this, this idea of trying to have catharsis for something that didn't actually primarily involve you. How does that fit in with the rest of the kids? Well, I think it fits in well with, with how the family dynamics go, right? Because like, I... As a, a middle brother, remember specifically, there's a time where, like, me and my brother came home for the holidays. We learned that my mother's co-worker, through not watching our cats when she agreed to, um, basically not showing up and uh, opening the doors, locked our cat in a room and killed it. Oh my so God. me and my brother went and just smashed her mailbox, which doesn't do anything. And she doesn't know why that happened. But we felt better about it in the moment. And we're like, well, what else are we going to do? Like, we just want them to like feel shitty for a moment. And it doesn't do anything. And it's not necessarily right. But I very much understood the emotional, like, I just want something to break. So someone else feels bad for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an immature thing to do. Don't get me wrong. But I also at that time didn't care at all. Mm-hmm. So I found that just like as a, a realistic emotional output from them because they don't know how to process it. Oh, yeah. that's, so I didn't look into it that much. I just think that's kind of how, how maybe that might have ran. What would your reaction be to that issue? 
Mm-hmm. What about the shining stuff? <laughs> I didn't get yeah. <laughs> no, like right. <laughs> so who who does he say looks like the guy from uh, the Shining? It's Matthew's kid. Matthew's kid, um, who's named Tony, and his son's named Danny. And Danny and the Shining talk to an invisible friend named Tony. Is that just the father being cruel? Unintentionally, I think. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's just like he's not trying to like specifically intentionally make jabs at him, but it's just another mm-hmm. thing to add to the pile. I think. Yeah, it's just like it kind of works to the the bigger idea that uh, you know, he's never met uh Matthew's son, and it's. You know, it's not a coincidence. The guy has the money and the means to go visit his grandfather if he wanted. He pretty obviously doesn't want him to meet his son because of how he was treated young at a young age, right? Well, like, also, Howard refused to go to their wedding because they had it in L.A. Yeah, which is yeah. also, you know, right up there. Like, why, why should he make the effort too? So, as far as the Shining connection, though, I can't... Obviously, that's not a coincidence. You don't make a Stanley Kubrick reference and as a filmmaker and make mm-hmm. that a coincidence. I, I, I will not accept that. <laughs> but I mean, the, one of the themes of The Shining, at least the movie, is the idea of paying attention to your work and your fame versus your, your children and how that uh-huh. is like destructive mentally to both. Uh, and that's what this movie is about. Like he mm-hmm. he's focused so much on his work versus his kids. At least that's how he was when he was young. In in when in his older age, like he doesn't really work anymore. He's retired. He doesn't do sculpting anymore. He has some newer stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's just like supposed to be like, hey, here's a little illusion for you. Yeah, I I mean, there's also some points t- to think about. It's like the in The Shining, the father tried to destroy the family, of course. He did it because he overworked himself and cared too much about it. Also probably ghosts, but that part's boring. Um, <laughs> and then he, you know, he died alone um, after driving everyone away, surrounded by a bunch of sculptures, right? Like, didn't he die in a... Uh, a hedge like, mage, fa- yeah. Yeah, with like cool carved hedges. That's Spoiler. sculpture. Uh, <laughs> or a 50, 40 year old movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> hey, the sequel just came out. People might be watching it again. No, it's it we can spoil the shining. There's a whole meme where you see Jack frozen to death, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, they have that. Uh I guess the the next thing I want to talk about is how communication works in this movie. Because I guess the best answer is it mostly doesn't <laughs> is no. There's so many times they're having two conversations at the same time, overlapping each other and and response to each other, which I know a lot of people hate when movies do this, but I like it a lot. Um, and I don't know exactly why. I think it's realistic, and that's what. Yeah, I don't know. I love movies <laughs> where it's just a lot of people talking, even if there's not like a strong narrative arc. Like, and that I've seen before, but something I haven't seen before is how they constantly cut off Danny before he's done in a scene. Yeah. And they they edit the movie, so he's about to like reach his kind of crescendo, you feel like, in the scene, and the, the scene ends, and it goes to the next one very mm-hmm. like quickly. Which I liked, because I, I felt like for the longest time, up until... I, I think it was up until he got his new hip, they didn't let him finish like his thought. And then he's finally allowed to... like finish a scene and then the edit goes like a half second later instead and it showed that like even so he lags behind in the whole movie and he he can't keep up with people and the scenes are ending too quick for him and when he finally admits that he has like this fault and helps it get it fixed by the end of it he finally has enough time to like finish a scene and actually communicate a full thought yeah and i thought that was a very interesting and cool way to do that like thematic element within a movie. Yeah, I mean, Danny, even at the beginning, he's circling around trying to find a parking spot. He's trying to find something that fits and it's not working for him. And and people keep honking at him and trying to hurry him up and everything. And um, yeah, I definitely think that's thematic. But going back to the communication, 
especially with regards to family, like, I have personally experienced this where I'm trying to communicate something to someone that is very important to me. So much of that time, I felt like Matthew, because well, like in the scene where Matthew was sitting down to have lunch with his dad, it starts, they meet at this lunch location, and uh, that's not good enough for the dad because the, the, the host was mean to him or whatever. So they go to a different location and that's not good because this other guy shows up. So they leave and they go to another location. They don't even get to have the meal. Uh, mm-hmm. Matthew only has an hour and a half for lunch. He has to go back to work. So he's like under pressure, whereas the other person isn't. So his primary need to, you know, have lunch during his lunch break is not being met. Two, he keeps trying to talk to him about his business um and literally howard is having a different conversation making it about him even though he had already talked to somebody else about this very same thing like mm-hmm. almost word for word about what was going on um i've had that experience before where i'm trying to say something that's very important to me and the other person has decided um the other family member has decided that no I'm going to talk about this instead. I'm, I'm going to make it about me now. Even if the whole conversation was predicated on the, hey, this is going to be a conversation about me instead. It's it's very frustrating. I, I understand. And like we were saying at the beginning, that the idea that it's not just like one thing. It's like the buildup of many little things. That's even a line in the movie. They say that they wish they had one big thing they could have been mad about their dad for but it's this this buildup of many little things. Yeah, and I know I felt that way, especially with like people I just generally dislike. Like they've done a lot of little things where I'm like, they give me a bad vibe. I don't like them. I'm not 100% sure why at this point, but like I don't want to be around them anymore. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, someone would be like, well, why do you not like them? I'm like, well, don't you see like, all this stuff i just i don't know exactly why they just you know there's a bunch of bad vibes and i mean you can be gaslit really easily i think but someone being like you're being too harsh and you don't actually have anything anything bad they did but in reality like you definitely do and it's perfectly reasonable and it's just hard to communicate why and the dad kind of constantly does this throughout the movie he's the worst person (laughs) (laughs) Uh, like yeah, his the the lying and gaslighting is is so wild from his point of view. Oh, especially the excuses and enabling he does for his wife. Oh yeah, when she has actual serious problems right there, and he keeps harping back to his kids and like digging at them. It. it it made me frustrated, even though I know it's a movie. No, and the funny thing is he kind of treats her like a kid, saying, like, if you quit drinking, we'll get a uh-huh. dog. If you quit drinking, we'll get a pool. Like, those are things that parents promise their kids when they're good. Like, if you're good and you behave yourself, we'll get a dog. Like, And he doesn't even notice when she is back to drinking either. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, when, when she says she's sober and she comes down absolutely, like, shit-faced. <laughs> And feeds them raw shark. <laughs> yeah, uh, so gross. Yeah, that was some of the grossest looking food I've ever seen. I think. <laughs> well, the, the thing was too, like the shellfish wasn't even opened, and that's how you know that it's not cooked all the way. Because when you cook shellfish, it opens. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Shellfish is all you know poison, so whatever. And doesn't she keep serving? What's the second thing that? Doesn't she offer to serve them something else as well? That's kind of pigeon, pigeon? Is that at it? one okay. point. <laughs> oh god! I, I, I think I've eaten Cornish hen, but if someone offered me pigeon in New York, I'd be like, no way, get away from me! <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> so gross. And yeah, and no one ever eats it. Is is half of it? <laughs> but yeah, uh, the scene too where Howard starts ordering everything off the menu once uh matthew says he'll pay for lunch was another thing of like me being like oh i hate you because they're not like they're not poor howard and his wife they own two houses one is a three-story apartment in downtown new york 
if that you they sell bought that, in you... 1973 for sixty thousand oh, dollars. When they said that, I was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so mad. Is this a movie about how the boomers have fucked us over? I'm I, I, a little. <laughs> I think it has. Jeez. There's some like extreme boomer energy, like the pressure that they put on the kids. I think it's yeah. definitely yeah. Or maybe I'm projecting a little, but yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Because like the there's that other scene where do, doesn't someone say they shouldn't be friends with their kids, isn't, and that's bad. Yeah, Loretta Who, says that. Yeah, and I'm like, no, like you can be friends with them. You don't have to like protect them from uh like the real world as much. I, that's not the right way to say it, but like you don't have to be best friends with them. Maybe is the way to say it. You don't have to buy them weed, but like it's probably okay if you're friends with your kids. And just don't be overbearing. Like give them some freedom to be their own person. Uh, don't talk yeah. about your personal problems with your kids. Don't talk about your okay relationship problems and things like that with your kids like you are supposed to be the person who is there to support the child putting your problems on the kid messes them up i say from experience Uh yeah like i think danny has a a better push on it where he's like i i mean he he is open that he tried to stay together for his daughter Mm -hmm. and and it's not great and he calls her um and she tries to like help him which you know, isn't necessarily a dynamic you want to have, but it is a healthier dynamic that she, like, understands he is looking for emotional support from her. But he goes, like, you know, do not worry about me. We'll talk tomorrow. It's not a big deal. Go enjoy your life. No, I, I really like that dynamic between between Danny and her. I think that maybe it was just, like, a little too friendly at first, like, because he... He relies more on her than vice versa, like for Mm. comfort and support. I mean, that's going to be his only family member, like his only immediate family member um, now that he's divorcing his wife. So obviously, like he's a little bit emotionally reliant on that. He wants to know about her. He is kind of upset when he doesn't know about her new boyfriends or roommates and stuff like that. But at the same time, he's supportive of her film um, he's there for her and says that he will always be there for her. They, they, they're they clearly close, but not like not too close. And I liked the scene when he calls her and she asks like, what's wrong? I'll step out. I'll talk to you. And he says, no, go enjoy your night. I do like that because that is how you you should handle something like that. Like don't guilt, guilt trip your daughter because you're feeling down. But then at the end too, he like, takes a beer out of her hand and like throws it because she's like not listening to him as a parent. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's like a sign of character growth or like not because she is 18. She can make her own decisions. I think that it's also provoked a little bit from Matthew being there. Right. Like I think like all of his parenting frustrations seem to stem from like him from Matthew having really good communication. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And he has like obviously so much resentment toward Matthew. Yeah. Also, there's the his daughter gets to talk to Matthew and he doesn't, which he's upset about. But like he doesn't want to take that away from his daughter. I'll point out. Yeah, she's 18. She is drinking, (laughs) though, uh, which is illegal where she's at. So he's he's being fine with it until that point. I don't think that 21 legal drinking age is a moral or ethical thing, but like blatantly drinking in front of your father when he's like trying to communicate could be something that would be upsetting. I could see. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that I think uh, right before that, doesn't he take a, a illegal drug? He doesn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he does. I forgot about that. Who took the upper and who took the downer? I, I meant to pay attention to that and I couldn't figure it out. I don't know. Do you guys have guesses on who, who took the upper and who took the downer? I don't know. They never really explained it because Stiller took half of one before and he didn't yeah. know what it did. And then he went and takes it. Does he t- which one did he take the second time? He starts crying. Anyway, I don't know. 
Yeah, because, yeah, I was going to say, because he starts crying, he probably took the downer. And I think because of how belligerent and, like, continuing to talk Sandler was in that previous scene. Because he was the one who kept provoking the conversation and saying stuff like, oh, it's not your fault, but I'm going to keep talking about it anyway. Mm-hmm. I feel like he probably took the upper. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't. Yeah, but I had meant to pay attention to it. But then I got, like, wrapped up in the plot. <laughs> There's also a throwaway line where he said he dropped out of college his first oh, yeah. month because he liked drugs too much. Oh, yeah. So he, I, I think there might have been a little bit of projection of like, you're going to do badly in the same way I did. And you have to listen to me and some overprotectiveness there. But I mean, it's a dense film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm coming around to. There's a lot. I'm glad that they don't really like they bring it up. They add little details like that, but they don't, you know just have a ton of position explaining what that really here's here's the background scene where adam sandler does too much weed and then he <laughs> drops out of school <laughs> uh yeah that was exactly just his problem with uh the do-over is they have a scene where where they're like hey we know we set this stuff all up for you but we assume you're dumb so here's those scenes in order um so you get it and yeah good filmmaking doesn't do that i don't think mm-hmm we have anything else we want to cover? I want to talk about that game. Oh, yeah. The only other thing I've written down is they overdressed once. And I think it's due to the heightened sense of self-worth that Howard has. And I think I can leave it at that. Oh, I did also write down like the idea of art versus money. But that's really essentially the, the, the difficulty between Howard and, and Matthew. So, yeah. um, I would just be repeating some information, I feel like. But I do want to talk about this game. But I am not the person to talk about it because I have no clue about Sink to Swim. swim? Okay. Um, Yeah, so I haven't played it yet, but I just know that's by World Champ Game Company. Um, Adam Vass is a tabletop RPG designer. Um, And it lists this game as one of the influences. It's a GMless storytelling game for two to four players. Um, And I've read it. It, You kind of go through different events. Mm -hmm. It's about you play as a late a late career artist kind of trying to make a comeback. So I guess maybe mm. Dustin Hoffman's character, but you know, you can play as someone less shitty. Um, and you, <laughs> you and he made some dice for it, custom dice that look really cool. And you kind of just role play through this, a series of events and kind of determine if it goes well or poorly or all that fun role playing stuff. Yeah, um, and I was reading through it, and I, I like that there's a few things of, like, during your opportunity to, like, make it big, there can be stuff where, like, the spotlight must be shared with other creators in a group display, which was definitely taken straight from this movie. Um, and having to roleplay through Howard's awkwardly talking about, like, well, you know, actually, my stuff's really good, and XYZ is very... uh. I, I really like the idea for this game and the, the kind of way they go with it because very few movies do you have to, or games do you have to uh, bullshit about the art you're putting on display in the moment when you haven't actually done so. And that's a, an interesting take on a game. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Meyerowitz stories too, like the way the sections are kind of chopped up I think that does kind of lend itself to, you know, these GMless storytelling games. I would be really interested in, like, seeing somebody try to play one of these more, like, I don't know, it's just, it's just very, I, I, I like the idea of that a lot. Um, and you can find that it's um, at worldchampgameco.itch.io, um, and then you'll, that'll be their company page, you can find it there, um, if you're interested in taking a look at that, but... Yeah, I mean, I just I just thought that that was really interesting after I watched this because this would be a at the same time it lends itself to that, but at the on the other hand, it's very non-game. Yeah, yeah, it's a movie you wouldn't think lends itself to to games. Which uh, once you enter the world of indie games, you realize that nothing doesn't lend itself to indie game design, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm a fan of. Yeah. Well, we have anything else we need to go over? Uh, I th- I think we're good. Let's let's get to pluggables. Yeah, Michael, you have uh, pluggables. 
I don't know. Um, I guess you can find me on Twitter at Michael Clamaris. Um, there's a link to my itch page on there where I have some tiny games and little fun stuff like that. Yes, and you also do um, some good things for the Michigan I guess, community. Yes. So you do. Yes, yeah. I yeah. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, I also help run and then the game collective thing that just posts about like meetups and games people are making in the state of Michigan. You can find that on Twitter at locally sourced Michigan. Um, yeah. My other <laughs> weird goofy hobby, I guess. No, that's fun. That's that's good that's good stuff. Yeah, and you can find our podcast at Laugh at Him Pod on Twitter. You can find our our games at wannabegames.com. We don't have any games that are really like this, though. <laughs> but I, I do encourage everyone to roll some dice and shout at each other uh, this Thanksgiving. Yeah, uh, so that's always fun to do. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wannabegames, but instead uh, continue give your, to give your money to uh, like the Bail Project, Black Hills Legal Fund, you know, other other projects that are going to, your money will go further with them than with us. So do that instead. And you can see me tweet about, well, right now I'm in my existential crisis about schools going back into session potentially in the fall. So you can see me tweet about that at, at Joska. Um, you can see me tweet about the census cowboy at Kitty Crusade. It is, I'm going to become a villain just to destroy this, uh, Batman-like figure. Everyone get ready. Watch out, census cowboy, and take my wife, please. Please.